Welcome to the Future Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Hunter, and I'm joined today by my other co-host, Mike Madison. Mike Madison, how the hell are you? I'm great, Dan. I'm great. How are you? Uh, not as good as you. I'm not. I'm no longer a law professor. I'm a law, law dean, which means my life is not really my own. But uh, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the future of law, the future law podcast, and do the season wrap up because it's been a big. It's been a big season. Uh, we've learnt a lot, played around a lot. You did the lion's share of the interviewing, so I, I wanted to ask you first uh, what you thought were the big lessons and the highlights of the of the season, and give us a bit of a wrap up. Okay, well, let me start off with a quick overview. We were talking about ALSPs, Alternative Legal Service Providers. There was some breadth to what we talked about. There was some depth, some deep dives, and there was some big picture futurism along the way. So trying to put all of these things into some semblance of context, looking beyond the here and now. For me, a couple of the big points were, number one, we keep referring to these, and the sector refers to these as ALSPs, alternative legal service providers. And I realized very early on talking to people that that alternative nomenclature really isn't fair or appropriate in context any longer. I get the way the sector has evolved and the way people are referring to themselves and to the sector, but this is really mainstream stuff at this point. All of the different small and large outside vendor, internal law firm, law department-based systems and, and operations, it's a big thing. Lots of people, a lot of energy, a lot of vision, a lot of money associated with all of this. It's, it's not really a niche side hustle to the traditional mainstream of law practice, which is often the way it gets talked about in law schools and law faculties. If you're out there with the people who are doing it, it's a, it's a big deal and it's a mainstream deal. So as I was introducing a number of the episodes along the way, if you go back and listen to some of these, these interviews, You'll hear me introduce it by saying it's not really an alternative. It's really a mainstream part of the of the legal ecology or just legal, as we now have learned to call it. That's one big takeaway. Second takeaway is that it is not colonizing all of the legal world. There are definitely aspects of the legal systems, law practice, legal education that are touched by technology in different ways. There's no avoiding that, but haven't been transformed by it or aren't being transformed by it. There, so there is still room in legal or the legal profession for law practice that has more of a traditional style to it, more of a traditional direction to it. And so to take an example of that, one of the episodes, I talked to my longtime friend and law school classmate, John Harris, who is a trial lawyer really a trial lawyer in the classic sense of that in New York City. And he is thriving and his little firm is thriving in the mostly employment law uh, and dispute resolution for people coming in and out of Wall Street. It's a niche practice, but it's an illustration of the fact that there are parts of the legal sector where ALSPs have not completely turned things upside down. And then uh, just the most recent episode, the one that's the, the latest in the series before we distribute this wrap up is my longtime friend, Mike Morneo, who has been uh, a consultant and team leader in a litigation support and investigation support practice, a data science enabled practice that you know, 20 years ago when he got into that, that, that area, it was really regarded more as a vendor to law departments and law firms. And now these folks really are partnered with 
their what we would think of as their clients or their customers, but it is a really much tighter integration between people who have law training, Mike's a licensed lawyer, or legal skills of different sorts with the clients and the law firms that they that they work with. So we were pretty good at capturing the breadth of what ALSBs are these days. So that's really interesting, particularly around the not alternative uh, part of a- ALSPs. So I-, I learned two things about ALSPs this this season, in part from from the interviews that I did uh, and listening to, to yours, but also one from actually an interview that I did, but te- we had some technical issues, and so I couldn't uh, we couldn't use it. First was we talk about ALSPs as though they're one thing, but they're lots of different things. You know, so so had an interview with David David Pierce from Axiom, and, and that's mostly you know a secondment and staffing kind of business it doesn't you know it's it's not set up as a as you know an alternative legal service provider in the sense of it's doing you know law in that you know the ways that we sort of think of oh you know it's around you know, e-discovery or managed services of some sort you know it's 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 a staffing business and, and a very you know technologically literate one but but interesting that's very different from the interview that i didn't manage to to, to upload, uh, which was with Chris DeConti, and Chris is the head of strategy at Factor, which was sort of Axiom's, you know, I don't want to say baby brother, but but you know, uh, distaff side, right? So Axiom, you know, was was created to do this, you know, alternative legal service provision, and split into Axiom and Factor. Factor does more of the managed services stuff, and so it's you know, it's very different from Axiom, but they would both call themselves indeed. Both do them call do call themselves ALSPs. So so that's one aspect. You know, I think in a sense it's just a catch-all. And what it really shows is there's just a lot of innovation. There's a lot of different business models that are operating in this space now, which is what you would expect. And we see that with captive ALSPs, you know, and, and where there are exactly the same sorts of functions that now exist within law firms, particularly big law firms. The big four, like Isabel Parker, who I interviewed, you know, went off to Deloitte, and, you know, they're doing exactly this throughout all of their service delivery. You know, they're doing consulting and innovation services, and they're doing managed services, and they're doing staffing and those things. So that's, a, that's an interesting development that ALSPs I think are, are much bigger than we sort of give them credit for when we, if we have a particular model. The other thing that I'll talk to about in a second when you come back and tell me what uh, what your take on that is, Mike. Uh, but the other thing is there's a really interesting question around have we been sold a bill of goods with ALSPs? Are they actually the thing that they were supposed to be? I'll talk about that in a second. But you wanted to dive in, Mike. Only to reflect back on your comment about how you know, law firms have some captive ALSPs and there's a lot of diversity in how these entities uh, are shaped and the kinds of services and functions that they've performed. It's not a single monotonic sector. There's a lot of breadth and depth to it in a different ways. How much of that will sustain and how much of that will shake out, we have yet to see. But one of the most interesting interviews I had this season was with the leadership of 650 in Salt Lake City, which might fall into the category of what you referred to as sort of a captive ALSP. 650 is largely underwritten and the energy for it and strategy for it comes from the Wilson Sonsini law firm, which is for most purposes, the leading Silicon Valley technology law practice and has been for some long time. And one way to think of 650 is simply that it is the law firm's effort to get into the the ALSP space with a captive unit that it can then market to its clients. A different way to think about 650, and I think way that 650 people imagine it, is that 650 is a kind of an aligned startup. 
where the future of 650, uh, either within the law firm universe or at the intersection of the law firm universe and the legal operations universe or the automated legal services universe is yet to be defined. Right. So I and I was describing that interview with 650 to other friends and colleagues, and they they said, well, the reaction was often, well, there's other law firms out there that are selling automated prepackaged legal forms for corporate formation, small company registrations and that sort of thing. And I said, "Okay, that's absolutely true. And there's other firms that have been in that that automated legal form space for longer. If you want a package of documents that helps you get a small company underway, non-disclosure agreements operating agreements and the like. There's definitely places that you can go in the US, I'm sure in the UK and elsewhere. But I don't think that's the vision for what 650 is meant to be, at least as I understand it right now. I think that the vision is to have a more, I'll call it tectonic impact on allocation of roles and responsibilities between classic law practices and these other things that right now we're calling ALSPs. Right. That's cool. I mean, there's just so many different things that are going on within ALSPs, whether they're captive, or, you know, as you say, some are sort of built as startups, some are built as joint ventures, some are you know, just part of the service delivery function of law firms. It's intriguing to see how each of these different areas get, get kind of built out in, in different ways. One really new learning for me, and I, I sort of thrown it, thrown it out there to a, to a number of colleagues and said, hmm, what do you think about this? So I was Talking with Krista Conti, the head of strategy at, at Factor, and uh, and he was talking about what they're calling in, in integrated law. And the reason that uh, they've gone down this route is that uh, he said that the original ALSP model is flawed. Right? The idea was that there's a lot of uh, high volume, low risk work, and he said that based on God knows how many years, I think he sort of said 15 or 20 years of doing this ALSP gig. Uh, he doesn't look that old, by the way. All of his time spent doing this, he doesn't think that there's a market there for that. It's not as big as you expect. And, and the reason for that is that he said very quickly, almost any high volume, low risk work starts to take on a degree of complexity and you just can't sort of outsource it to you know a, a bunch of robots however constituted you know you actually have to have lawyers who've got a serious amount of of knowledge and skill um, to do what is you know the bespoke work of regular lawyering and so so he he said actually the market for the what we would might call the traditional good old-fashioned ALSPs if that's such a term uh, is actually really small it's e-discovery and a few bits and pieces of you know really high volume stuff but but most work actually becomes complex really quickly and so what they're doing is sort of moving up the value chain they're looking much more like a law firm but they're integrating their solutions with with their clients so I'm going to make a pointy-headed academic observation about that. You are a pointy-headed academic, Mike. I can I can confirm that. So that's good. I am a pointy-headed academic. I'm I'm not a dean, right? So I, I can justify my 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 statement that way. Because I'm fascinated by that anecdote and I understand hundred percent what it means. And with all respect to his experience, which has to be genuine, I am reminded instantly of the Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen who became famous in the late 1990s for this very, very uh, sort of provocative book. The only way to put it is a book that really kind of rocked the management world called The Innovator's Dilemma. And Christensen's research that he summarized in the book said that incumbent firms, market dominating firms, 
in whatever sector, face a challenge when it comes to preserving their market leading position versus innovating to stay ahead of the competition. Right. So the rational firm to maintain its position and to maintain its margins will continue to double down on what it has done well and how it has been making its money. Doubling down on what it has done well is in contrast to pushing the innovation envelope to stay ahead of the competition. So there's this internal conflict. Right. So the innovators feel oppressed by the incumbent managers who want to maintain the firm's market position. This creates an opportunity for lower end, cheaper alternative firms to innovate at the margin and and chunk away at the high volume, low cost work. As the incumbent firm moves up market to maintain their margins and stay clear of the innovators at the lower end, the innovators if they're doing it well, get better and get bigger and get more sophisticated. So the innovators too start to take over more and more of the, not just the lower end market, but the mid market, forcing the incumbent firm to continue to retreat up market. And eventually this pattern results in tipping over the entire market structure and the would be disruptive low end innovator ends up with a substantial amount of market share. So your anecdote uh, you know, from Factor is in many ways to my ears consistent with that pattern, which is to to say that Factor is behaving entirely rationally by moving up market uh, based on technology factors and economic factors to preserve their, their business model. One thing that tells me, just to conclude with this, is that the ALSP market is starting to get more mature. Right? It's no longer a bunch of scrappy startups nipping away at the heels of the big four or uh, large law firms. Some ALSPs have been around long enough and are sophisticated long enough to think of themselves as bigger, more durable players. And now they're starting to look over their shoulders at you know, the scrappy, nimble things or startups. Uh, one of the, the anecdotes or one of the stories that, that Clay Christensen told in, in, in that was, of course, uh, the story of Bethlehem and U.S. Steel and, and how the big blast furnaces died. And, and it's very appropriate that you're talking to us today from Pittsburgh. Uh, you want to tell us some stories about, about blast furnaces, Mike? I know you love talking about Pittsburgh. Uh, I, I'm, I'm aching to, but I, I would end up <laughs> monopolizing the rest of the podcast with my stories All about right. the steel industry. <laughs> but but, but, I, but I, I do think you're right. You start, we're starting to see the LSPs mature and and, and so they're also segmenting, you know, and that sort of comes back to the first observation around A, they're not alternative anymore, B, they, they actually look very different and there's lots and lots of different examples and they're, and they're you know, carving out space in, in different parts of the market. So that's the ALSP story uh, of this of this season in, in 25 words or less, or in your case, Mike, 2,500 words or less. Uh, <laughs> you've, done very, you've done very well. You've, you've reduced your word count. Excellent. The, the second story is, is, a, is a little bit more diffuse, which which we were looking at, sort of what are the structural changes? What what's what's going on? What is, you know, if, if we're sort of trying to to get a roadmap for the future of law for real, what what does that that look like? And I don't have any clear kind of sense that that we got to the bottom of that, which is not surprising. But I, I was wondering if you had some sort of views because I know you've been doing a lot of this sort of work separately in other sorts of fora, and I'm interested in where you think that's going. One of the things I took away from this season. And the focus on ALSPs is how connected the ALSP topic is to all other features of the legal system, from legal education to 
AI and uh, all of the different AI implementations and AI as kind of a metaphor for lots and lots of different things that are coming into our worlds from a technology standpoint. Rule of law questions like dispute resolution in courts and transparency. I interviewed Eric Holder, the former attorney general of the United States, about voting rights you know, a paradigm of uh, rule of law issues. And, and it's not difficult, as I reflect back on the whole season, to connect up a conversation about voting rights to a conversation about how legal services are developed, produced, and delivered to how organizations like law firms and courts and ALSPs, how they're staffed. So how people coming through law schools and getting law degrees and Moving into the profession, how do they build careers and how do they imagine what they've been training for? These are all very explicitly connected things. I don't think we have to do a lot of excavating in academic way to find the hidden links amongst, amongst all these things. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. So, so my, my take on the structural aspects or the, the sort of what, what, what's changing is that, that I've become, what's the, what's the word? I was going to say, depressed or maybe actually ex excited about the durability of the legal profession and and the law firm right so and it, and it does come back to to your great interview with the xag eric holder but but it's it sort of it's it's a more general point which is that at, at various times i have sort of assumed that alsps and legal tech entrepreneurs and a, and a range of others would would sort of eat the profession that, that in fact that the firms were, were going to die uh, there might be a few left you know but it was quite a dystopian kind of an idea and in talking with particularly some of the big firms here in in london these are very durable institutions and while they have adapted and innovated their core kind of offering their service offering is exactly the same as 100 or 200 years ago and when you talk to them often the sort of the discussion goes something like oh you know you really need to innovate in this in this space and they go yeah sure we we, we do that but we make so much money from delivering legal services that actually you know it's it's, it's blocking the view of the television and and you know we're, we're, we're spending all of our time just shoveling it into the vault you know, uh, you know that's that's you know that's the innovation that we need have you got a way of actually you know getting the money put away you know faster and and, and that was sort of surprising to me as I was as I was talking to people around this. I don't know if you've noticed that as well. So I'll, I'll offer a counterpart anecdote from my Pittsburgh base. This is not something that made it onto an episode uh, of the podcast yet, but maybe I'll figure out a way to get it in in a future episode. Not too long ago, uh, I was privileged to attend the in-person swearing in of the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, a graduate of my law school, uh, an incumbent justice, associate justice of the PA Supreme Court named Deborah Todd. And for circumstances uh, I'll skip over for now, she was elevated to the chief's position last fall and there was a public cer ceremony and a big swearing in and frankly a big party uh, in her honor because she's a lovely, smart, accomplished person here in Pittsburgh and I went. And it was in, in person in a ballroom in a downtown hotel and there must have been four or 500 people present. Some of us academics from various law schools, quite a number of her fellow judges in the state court system, some of the federal judges, particularly at this end of the state, friends, family, 
family, politicians of various sorts, the governor and so forth. And it was really not only a big celebration of her, her record, her career, her potential. She's the first woman to serve as chief in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court is the oldest appellate court in the United States, which was a fact that was repeated over and over again with enormous pride by people in attendance. But the thing that struck me was not only the celebration of her as an individual and as a member of the bench, the thing that struck me was what a joyous celebration it was of this ancient institution. The idea of dispute resolution in a public proceeding with due process and all of the ritual and substance that that implies was clearly top of mind for everybody in the room. And it was clearly animating the positivity that flowed in all of the speech making and celebrations and even the oath of office that here we have this institution that in Pennsylvania is 300 years old. I know in other parts of the world, that's simply a drop in the temporal bucket. But in the U.S., 300 years is a really long time. And the durability of that is not associated with the profitability or cash, obviously. It's associated with a set of values and a set of practices that are not in the main, being transformed by technology or alternative systems. Yes, there is alternative dispute resolution. There's automated dispute resolution. AI is definitely making its way into that world as well. And we've had some episodes about that on the podcast. But I think the core of the judiciary and the judicial system is sort of an institutional complement to what you were talking about in terms of the durability of private law practice and private law firms, that there is something not only about the money, there's something about the tradition and about the values that the tradition represents that that's not going away. So you heard it here first, folks, the future of law, according to Mike Madison, is just the past. Uh, and so I think we have an answer, right? The Future Law Podcast finally nailed it. Uh, Forward into the past. For, <laughs> with all with all due, due dispatch um, in, our, in our horseless carriage. So we're, we're getting close towards the end of, of this season, very close. It feels, feels a, it's starting to feel a lot like Christmas. No, it's starting to feel a lot like uh, when we'll be releasing this, I guess, sometime in February. So I did want to end with a question for you, Mike, and it's the question du jour. Everybody's talking about it. Nobody knows quite what to do about it, certainly in, in education, but I'm interested in law. And that, of course, is generative AI and large language models. Uh, so what should we take away about the future of law and generative AI, perhaps as a teaser for other things that we will pick up in subsequent seasons? Yes. So, of course, we're talking about chat GPT and related things. And I think the first is, if I were to ask my colleagues around legal uh, academic profession and teachers in other fields, I think is to, in the face of generative AI, is to throw your hands in the air and run screaming from the room that this is going to ruin all of us, uh, ruin humanity, ruin our ability to train next generation professionals in essential sort of humanistic skills such as writing and communicating for other human beings. Obviously, I think that the moral panic over these technologies and their applications at the moment is way overblown. But I do think it poses, these technologies pose some really important challenges, both in the, in the near term and in the long, long term. So legal education, as you well know, has been captive to a very specific model of teaching and a very specific model of assessment, especially in the U.S. and in other countries that have adapted or adopted the U.S. model of legal education. That model goes back 
here in the US, 150 years, right? So we still organize the, the law degree and our courses and our examinations very much the way Harvard Law School invented them in the 1870s, which is both an enduring and charming history and, and an uproariously foolish history because there's no good evidence that it actually works except to fill the, the bank vaults and coffers of private law firms. So what I'm in the process of thinking about is how do these technologies change what I teach and how I teach it. Not that I'm going to throw out everything that I've been doing, because I've already been doing a lot of different things, but have to be more focused on what exactly it now means to develop the human skills that traditional law firms value, that ALSPs will make use of, that people can build on when they are steering their own careers. So if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a new lawyer, if I'm a law student, where I, wherever I am, and I'm experimenting with these technologies, as I think many students are. If I'm beginning my career and I'm starting as a junior lawyer in, in a big law firm or in a big four uh, enterprise or a startup or a solo practice, I'm using technology systems. And I'm only using technology systems that are getting more sophisticated every single day. So I have to think about, in a, like a management sense, what's my value proposition? And if I'm teaching these people to become lawyers, how do I advance new lawyers along a pathway where they can be successful and prosperous in their roles. So I think it just raises a lot of really foundational questions that as law professors and mentors and trainers in different settings, we haven't had to ask those foundational questions in a long time. It's certainly going to be an interesting and somewhat rocky transition, I have to say. It, it, it hit faster than uh, I expected, and, and I profess to know a little bit about this area. So that's that's kind of been wild, throwing this semester into complete disarray for assessment. <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 sorry, I mean, you've been in the, the computer science and law world for literally decades, uh, you know, one of the pioneers uh, of this area. Literally decades. I haven't, I haven't seen, I, I haven't, I haven't seen things move this fast with this degree of, of choppiness, right? Like it's a, it's, a, it's a very big step change. I mean, of course, the, 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 the obvious answer around all of this, and I think it's exactly what, what you said, which is we will find that it's not nearly as threatening as we thought and that in fact, this is just a tool like so many other tools which we have accommodated and in fact are delighted about, you know, whether it's the calculator for, oh, we you know you we used to have to, we used to test arithmetic. It's like, well, why would you do that now? We used to assess, you know, multi multiplication and, and teach people times tables. And it's just like, yeah, you know, we, we just are going to approach this differently. It comes back I, when, when I was looking at these generative AI systems and, and was actually looking to build a version of GitHub's Copilot, uh, which, which sort of automates or assists the, the coding process. And, and I was talking to a law firm about saying, well, we, you know, we, we should build a generative AI drafting tool. And then it was just like, sure. And then about, you know, I don't know, 10 days later, someone had already done it because you can just, you know, build on top of GPT or, or Lambda or Palm. And, uh, and so it was like, oh, okay, so, so it's, it's happening faster than I expected. But at the end of the day, there is still going to be that, that observation that you made previously is practice at the top of your license, right? So, so the, the sort of the low end work is, is going to be automated. That's going to drive things up the food chain. You're going to, there's going to be more emphasis on soft skills, on ability to communicate, to take the content, the basic sort of stuff that's created by these generative AI tools and then craft it into something that's actually valuable rather than something which is just, just generic. So I think that's where we're going to head with this. I would add one thing to that. 
because you hear that phrase, practice at the top of your license a lot. And within the incumbent profession and incumbent law schools, that's definitely the, the direction that we encourage people to go. But I don't think we should dismiss what's happening at the lower ends, so-called lower ends of the market, right? So the mass distribution of, of cheap stuff, whether that's shaped by lawyers or shaped by other people, because I think those services and those platforms have a lot of value to add. There's a lot of criticism, which much of which is justified. So it's not to say that any of the access to justice kinds of deployments of some of these things are without fault or without gaps. They certainly can be and should be, and I think will be improved. But I think that by focusing all our attention on the top of the license kind of rhetoric and practice, I think that there's a huge missed opportunity for people who want to broaden access to, to law, legal services, legal information, improve outcomes for a variety of people who are not ever going to have access to people who are trained to practice at the top of their license. So it just becomes a very heterogeneous, much more diverse system in terms of what we mean by law, what we mean by law practice, what we mean by dispute resolution, and what we intend for our graduates to go off and do. And that's a great way to wrap up uh, this particular season. So uh, I think we should we should leave it there. I think we'll we'll leave a teaser to say all of these sorts of ideas are to be continued, and we'll have an opportunity of talking about that together. I hope at the beginning of next season. Mike Madison, thank you for all your work this this season. It's been fun to do it with you as always. Season four in the books. This is a blast and continues to be. I'm looking forward to what comes next, Dan. <laughs>